0: Welcome back to the Walk the Word podcast. My name is James and I'm a pastor here at Saul Fellowship in the Kingdom of Bahrain. And this is our midweek audio-only Bible teaching. We have been walking through God's Word together one chapter a week, all the way back from Genesis chapter 1. And today we get to Numbers chapter 10. Now, as we say each and every week, if you've never read this chapter, if you have no idea what Numbers 10 is all about, go ahead and press pause and read it back together as we seek to know and grow in the word. So Numbers 10, big picture, we're talking about two main things. We're talking about these silver trumpets and God's people uh, leaving the base of Mount Sinai where they've been camped uh, for a little while. Uh, So first thing then, Numbers 10 begins with, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, make two silver trumpets of hammered work, you shall make them and you shall use them for summoning the congregation and for breaking camp. There's not really much to, uh, <laughs> much to comment on here, is there? They're making two silver trumpets. Uh, if you read around this, they're going to be not like a trumpet you'd play in your high school band, more like a long, thin tube with an opening at the end, uh, quite rudimentary, quite basic, quite simple. As we read there, they're going to summon the congregation. It's going to be quite a loud and distinct noise. Uh, Attention, come here. uh, And for breaking camp. And uh, as we continue in this passage, we see when both are blown, we're in verse 3 now, when both are blown, all the congregation is going to uh, gather themselves at the entrance of the tent of meeting. If it's uh, one, the trumpets, then it's just the chiefs, the heads, the tribes, the She'll come. Uh, If it's blown as an alarm, like a different, uh, distinct sound, uh, the camps that are on the east shall set out. When you blow an alarm the second time, the camp's on the south side. Uh, But when the people are being brought together, you should blow a long blast. Uh, Lots of stuff in our Bibles has very deep and significant spiritual value. Uh, but we often forget that these are real people living in a real place. there's a a lot of them over a wide open space, and they needed a system to, to gather everybody or just these people or just that people, how to kind of structure things and um if we were making a spiritual point of this, um, we've got to we need attention before obedience. You know God has to have our attention before we do anything. Uh, For him, but again, it's not really a point that I'd make too strongly It's just infinitely practical You need a way to get people's attention To gather certain groups of people To communicate different things instantly to large groups And uh, in this place at this time It was a giant silver trumpet or two What is really interesting uh, Is verse 7 When the assembly is to be gathered together There's going to be a long blast If we flick all the way forwards To the New Testament, New Covenant We see Paul talking to or writing to the Thessalonians. He writes about Jesus' return. Uh, How does he say that happens? Well, 1 Thessalonians 4. I can get there in time. 1 Thessalonians 4. How is the return of Jesus announced? Uh, The Lord Himself. First uh, Thessalonians 4.16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. The return, the physical body of the return of Jesus is preceded by long blasts of a trumpet to gather people to get their attentions. If we're looking for a, a Jesus application, a New Testament equivalent of this Old Testament truth, uh, I would suggest it's probably there. Uh, the rest of the passage, when you go to war, um, we're going to sound an alarm with trumpets, uh, and it's oh, we read it in that passage there, verse nine, that you may remember, you may be remembered, excuse me, before the Lord your God. Uh, so yes, it's for gathering people. It's infinitely practical, but it's also used in times of war to remind the people, uh, look, who are we fighting for, and who is on our side. The rest of the chapter then, verses 11 through to 36, maybe your Bible's got a little subheading that says Israel leaves Sinai, or mine does anyway. And in the second year, the second month, on the 20th day of the month, a cloud lifts... Uh, from over the Tabernacle, we said this very visible presence of God in this place at this time, and the people set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai, and the clouds settled down in the wilderness of Paran. If you read around this, this is going to become their um, their staging area where they are right now before that last push on into the promised land and uh, the march is described in the next few verses. Uh, Judah sets out first and there's this person leading, there's that person leading, and there's this tribe and there's that tribe. And uh, so far lots of people have had lots of instructions on how to break down the tabernacle and when to break down the tabernacle. Uh, but as far as I'm aware, this is the first time that we're reading about it actually being broken down and transported. We've had loads of instructions about this family does this, this family does that, and then this and then that. But this is the first time we see it actually happening in verse 17 when the tabernacle was taken down. The sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari, who carried the tabernacle, set out. And the standard of the camp of Reuben set out by their companies. And over their company was Eliza the son of Shedir. And again, this goes on and on and on. We get the um, uh, who's marching and what order and what they're carrying and um, things like that. All the details. And in verse 29, we see that Moses said to Hobab, the son of Ruel the Midianite. Now, if we just kind of hit pause there, uh, it also says this is his father-in-law. Maybe you think, well, back in Exodus, he is known as Jethro. Not uncommon in this place at this time to be referred to by a couple of names. I uh, think about Paul and Saul. He has a name that suits his and fits his uh, Jewish upbringing, the, that kind of community that he moved in. Uh, we've got Paul, his the the Romanized name. Um, not uncommon for people to go by a couple of names. Uh, based on what circles they were moving in. So just because we read a different name here for uh, Ruel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law doesn't mean that our Bibles are all nonsense uh, because obviously back in Exodus 17, 18, uh, he's called Jethro. Uh, so Moses uh, says to him, look, we're setting out for the place which the Lord said, I will give it to you. And he says to his father-in-law, come with us and we'll we'll do good to you for the Lord has promised good to Israel. Uh, this is not the first interaction they've had. There's a, a wonderful passage back in Exodus where father-in-law says to him, basically, look Moses, what you're trying to do, lead all of these people all by yourself, is just not good. You're going to burn yourself out. It's going People are obviously going to see that. They're going to start to reflect that. And it's just not a good idea, Moses, for you to do all this leading all by yourself. And When people like to detract from the Moses model of church leadership, where somebody is leading uh, with elders, with a, a group to support and to help, they often forget that a real, true, biblical Moses model has a bunch of elders doing a bunch of things. Uh, Jethro is, is telling Moses back there in Exodus Look, stop what you're doing Stop doing it all by yourself Get elders, install elders over groups Over ministries Over different people And let them do stuff And that's particularly difficult You get involved with But generally you look after them And they'll look after people uh, So a real, true, biblical Moses model Always has elders uh, involved So Again, all of that to say, look, Moses has interacted with this guy before. He's seen the wisdom in what he's saying. So here in Numbers 10, he's saying, look, we're setting out and we would really like you to come with us. But in verse 30, it says, I will not go. I'll depart to my own land and my own kindred. And then Moses replies... Please do not leave us, for you know where we should camp in the wilderness, and we will serve. Or you will serve as eyes for us. And if you do go with us, whatever good the Lord does to us, the same will be done for you. So first of all, Moses is just appealing to this, uh, look, um, please, please come with us. Um, <laughs> don't go. Uh, father-in-law says, no, I'm going back to my people, I'm going to live in my place. Uh, and then Moses adds a bit more detail and says, look, you, gives him a reason why we need. It gets a little bit more specific. And not just please come with us. We need you because you know these areas. Uh, you know where we're going. Um, you will be able to help us. And in return, we will help you as well. And then in verse 33, they obviously uh, do bring him along. Uh, they set out from the mount of the Lord for three days journey. This phrase, three days' journey, is not always super literal, it's more of a, well, it's quite a military term. Um, It talks about the uh, kind of a set distance that an army or a, a large group of people could walk in a day. It's about 15 miles, about 20 kilometers. So when we read they've gone on three days' journey, it means they've traveled about 40 miles, about 60 kilometers. And uh, We read that the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went before them three days' journey to seek out a resting place, and the cloud of the Lord was over them by day whenever they set out from camp. And then this chapter finishes, Whenever the Ark set out, Moses says, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee before you. When it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. And we've talked about before just the, the, the beautiful spectacle that this is, you know, uh, pillars of cloud by day and, and fire by night. And this is very, very visible truth that God is with these people. This uh, almighty, supernatural, not like us, power and presence and person is with these people. And Moses, in his most priestly way, you know, says, Arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, let those who hate you flee before you, and they, you know, setting off for the journeys. And then they come in down and they camp, and he's almost inviting, not that we need to invite the presence of God anywhere. We know that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere um, at all times, past, present, future. Um, there doesn't need to be two or three of us gathered to, <laughs> to kind of magically Uh, have the presence of God. We don't invite him anywhere, but it's almost like the language is somewhat invitational. uh, Return, O Lord, to the 10,000 thousands of Israel. And I'm sure that Moses knew uh, big truths about God, but I would suggest for the benefit of the people, Moses is praying. Moses knows that God is there. It's a very visible thing. We now know God is there because scripture tells us, but there's nothing wrong with still praying these big prayers, uh, re- Speaking these big truths. Return, O Lord, to the 10,000, thousands of Israel. Yes, God, we gather to worship you this morning. We know that your presence is with us. We invite you to make it more tangible. Uh, We invite it to be amplified and magnified as we're gathered here as your people. Yes, that's going to happen anyway because we know that God is with each one of us. And when we get together, that means we know all that stuff, but there's nothing wrong with reasserting these big, bold truths. Next week then, Numbers chapter 11, people go the way that people always go. We're going to read about people complaining. Uh, and again, as we've just kind of referenced here, Numbers 11, uh, elders are appointed to help Moses with the leading of the